0: You're listening to Fueled, a Fenstemaker podcast. And I'm your host, Katherine Finstermaker. So today we're here with Billy Williamson, who is the statewide flood and watershed evaluation programs manager with the Louisiana Department of Transportation and Development. Prior to his nine year tenure with LADOTD, Billy worked within the Louisiana Department of Natural Resources as a professional engineer upon graduation from Louisiana State University with a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. In his current role with LADOTD, Mr. Billy Williamson provides management and oversight for the watershed and flood protection programs in the Public Works and Water Resources Division, including the Louisiana Watershed Initiative, the statewide hydrologic and hydraulic modeling and statewide flood control programs, the Roadway Flood Mitigation Program, and the Federal Highway Administration's Formula Program, promoting resilient operations for transformative, efficient, and cost-saving transportation, known as PROTECT, which seeks to enable the resiliency of our surface transportation infrastructure. Billy regularly speaks to the ongoing efforts of the Louisiana Watershed Initiative, presenting regularly at American Society of Civil Engineers seminars and conferences along with providing detailed project progress updates to local stakeholder groups and the public. A recent recipient of the Louisiana Engineering Society's Andrew M. Lockett Medal, congratulations, Billy was recognized in February of 2022 for his distinguished service as an engineer, acting in the best interests of the public, even in the absence of compensation. Having taken great care to contribute to the civic well-being of his community surrounding parishes and the state of Louisiana, Billy serves as an inspiration to other engineers that they may follow his lead in this exceptional service. So I'd like to thank you, Billy, uh, for taking some time to talk with us today. We're here at the State Library of Louisiana. So we're so thankful to them for their hospitality. Grateful to you for being with us and uh, been looking forward to this very much.
1: And thank you for having me.
0: (laughs) So having said all of that, by way of introduction, I just want to introduce the topic of this season of Fueled is the Louisiana Watershed Initiative. So just a little bit of background on that. In August of 2018, Governor Edwards launched the Louisiana Watershed Initiative, a continuation of the planning, coordination, and collaboration across various federal, state, and local agencies in direct response to the historic flooding events in March and August of 2016, events that forced us to rethink how our state approaches floodplain management. Following the launch of LWI in September of 2020, the federal government, through the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, signed a grant agreement, establishing a $1.2 billion line of credit and community development block grant mitigation funds for flood risk reduction priorities throughout Louisiana, providing an unprecedented opportunity to enhance and expedite LWI efforts. So, this infusion of monetary resources must be really exciting for you as DOTD is managing the development of LWI watershed models, which will ultimately serve to assess flood scenarios and solutions statewide. So firstly, I'd love for you to talk to me about your role in this effort and maybe a bit about your background, how you came into your current position with DOTD as Statewide Flood and Watershed Evaluation Programs Administrator.
1: Okay. I guess my current role with Louisiana Watershed Initiative is I am the program lead for, as you mentioned, the H&H modeling statewide. I'm also the DOTD member of the Projects Technical Advisory Group. That kind of speaks to how I ended up here. Um, Whenever I first came over to DOTD, it was to manage the one program, Statewide Flood Control Program. And so that's a program that we use funding through the Transportation Trust Fund to provide flood control relief to local parishes and municipalities. And so one of the big things that we were kind of early on the engineering side, the technical side of, of projects, as far as requiring calibrated and validated models for all of our projects. I came over as a mechanical engineer. I did not have a lot of experience with H&H modeling, but I learned it through that program. And so that was kind of my my first entry into the program was through the projects tag. They were looking for somebody that kind of has that background in project evaluation. And so I kind of took a kind of forward role on the projects tag. As every company has seen through COVID, we have had a decent amount of turnover through uh, just the difficulties of that time. And as a result, we lost our program manager on the modeling side. And at the time I had been working pretty closely with them on how to set up the models for project evaluation. And so whenever that spot opened up, they said, hey, we really need somebody to kind of help shepherd this along. Do you think you would be available to do that? And being who I am, I said, absolutely, I'd love to. And so kind of through all of that, I've taken on more responsibilities. You know, we kind of took over, I guess, oversight of the roadway flooding program. We do have project managers on each of these projects. But what that does is it just allows me to kind of handle the, the oversight, the high level difficulties that come with running programs like this.
0: Well, I love that that's your personality to say yes. I hear that kind of the key to opportunity is just being willing to say yes to a wonderful opportunity. Absolutely. It sounds like it's been a good growth trajectory for you.
1: Absolutely. And I, I wouldn't trade it. I think it's an opportunity that at times it gets hard, but I think it's a very extremely valuable scenario that we're setting up for the state that if I wasn't involved, I'd feel like it was out of my control and I'd feel like it could go wrong. So yeah. it's nice to be involved and being able to, as I said, shepherd it in the correct direction.
0: Yeah, a fantastic steward. Thank you. So when thinking about LADOTD, I believe I personally have had a limited view that the entity is responsible for roadways, bridges, and generalized transportation infrastructure. And I'd be willing to bet that our general populace as well does not know the full breadth of DOTD's responsibilities. So would you take a few moments to shed some light on this big picture of our Louisiana Department of Transportation and Development and how it serves the public more broadly than perhaps most imagine?
1: Yeah, and this is one that I actually, we get this question a lot, and it's not just from citizens of Louisiana, but we go to national conferences and other departments of transportation kind of say, well, what is the second D? And so it's kind of a history lesson in Louisiana politics, actually. Whenever the 1974 Constitution was written, they put a cap on the number of state departments at 20. So they had the initial departments. In 1976, they made the decision to create the Department of Natural Resources. In order to do that, they had to eliminate a department. And so as to meet that, they took the old Department of Highways and the Department of Public Works, And they took those two, combined them together, became DOTD, and then that freed up a slot for uh, Department of Natural Resources. And so a lot of those roles that that we kind of focus on in our Public Works and Water Resources Division comes out of the old Department of Public Works. We're the shepherd of most of the old Department of Public Works plan sets. So dams and levees, the inspection of dams and levees statewide, there's I believe 20 state maintained dams across the state that public works and water resources division is kind of the head of we also through our section handle the state roadway highway hydraulics state roadway flooding program pretty much anything that will have to do with water in and around our state infrastructure as well as outside of the infrastructure kind of outside of our right-of-way
0: That's a big box.
1: It is a very big box. (laughs) And so I think that's where we are. That's what I tell everybody that we live in that second D. That is our kind of house is that second D, that development. That is our kind of our public works world.
0: Okay. Very interesting. Very interesting. And well beyond, I think, my conception of just dealing with highways, but a really nice, a really nice collection of services for y'all to yeah. offer very broad and and seemingly vast
1: and, and it's one of those ones that you see in in other states that kind of look at it as an odd kind of we're the odd duck you know i haven't met any other state that has that wider role but in in a lot of ways it's actually advantageous for situations like this because we are naturally the engineering heavy department for the state so it would make sense to have that is your kind of lead department on major engineering endeavors like these.
0: Okay. I can see it as one sort of aspect of it is is feeding into another. And really, instead of passing the ball to another agency, you know, it's within your own agency that you're able to handle it and execute.
1: Basically. Correct. And we are a large agency. So we do have, we have our own silos that occur within the agency, but mm-hmm. it's one thing that it's within your own chain of command. So right. you can, you know, who you need to go talk to at that point. So.
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, that's great. So you're working in conjunction with several other state agencies on behalf of the Louisiana Watershed Initiative, including the Governor's Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness, the Louisiana Office of Community Development, the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, and the Louisiana Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority. This is quite an array for interagency collaboration. So can you speak to how this integrative approach is working to create a more resilient Louisiana?
1: Yeah, I think it's been a work in progress. As you mentioned, there's a lot of different agencies with, you know, we all work for the the citizens of Louisiana and we're, we're trying to do our best for the citizens of Louisiana. But we come at it from a little bit different angle and that we have a different prioritization of the different things. Whereas environmental quality and wildlife and fisheries uh, can be concerned with water quality, invasive species movement. With DOTD, our focus has always been more on the, I guess, the hard side of it. How do we get the water o- away from the, I guess, risk portfolios? Okay. And so, you know, we're having to work with a lot of different agencies, and that was a big part of it was creating that cooperation. And I mentioned in the kind of the last question how even in within DOTD, you have silos, and this is kind of it on a bigger scale. It's bigger silos. We have all of these different agencies that are concerned with the water, be it water quality, be it storm surge with CPRA or or circulation, that all of these different things kind of interact with each other. And so I think that was a a focus that that Governor Edwards recognized that that needed to be put on the issues in the state. We are kind of the state that is most impacted by water. You know, you, you can't drive a mile in a state without crossing a bayou or a coulee or or a a creek depending on what part of the state you're in right and so making sure that we all understand that and understand that we all need to work together and so for us we need to kind of basically be the idol i'd say the idol
0: the maybe the head of the totem i guess the The flagship
1: the, the flagship we need to lead the way as a state Whenever we're looking at the different parishes and we're saying, we need you all to work together. Because that's ultimately one of the the big results that we need to see is that the water is managed at a parish and local level. Mm -hmm. From ordinances, how they treat runoff, these are all local jurisdictional affairs. And so we're asking them all to work together with each other so that you're not putting your water off on your neighbor. So I think we need to lead. And that cooperation, we need to show that the different state agencies can work together to meet the common goal of the citizens of Louisiana. And so I do think it's important the kind of the, I guess, the example we're setting for the parishes, it has been difficult at times, you know, the term we go back to is too many cooks in the kitchen, Mm -hmm. whenever you have kind of competing needs and wants, sometimes it can get very loud. Uh, There can be a lot of noise within the conversation. And so we've worked through it. We've had a lot of meetings, hours and hours of Zoom meetings through (laughs) COVID. But I I think we've all kind of reached an understanding together in that it's, um, you know, we're providing as much as we can to help everybody understand our needs as a state and the needs of water management.
0: I would say one positive outcome of COVID is this familiarity and ease with which we're all leveraging web conferencing.
1: Well, so absolutely. And it's funny. So whenever we look strictly at the modeling effort, basically the day that we had our initial kickoff meeting. So we had all of our consultants, seven national and international consulting firms that were coming to meet us at our transportation research center for a meeting. That was the day that the state shut down for COVID. Wow. And so...
0: (laughs) Great timing. (laughs) We were
1: very excited about our kickoff meeting, and it didn't happen, but we have learned Zoom. And one of the things that we've seen efficiently is because we are on this large of a scale of an effort, it's not all small local firms. And so the Zoom gives us that opportunity to kind of reach out, have meetings with all of our different consultants and not incur... $1,000 a piece for travel costs.
0: Absolutely. Bringing some efficiency to government.
1: Yeah. So, so there
0: have been some positive ripple effects of of COVID. Been. Yeah. You know, it's good to look at the bright side now that we're kind of getting on the other side of it, honestly. It's good to call out a benefit when right. we see one <laughs> and take a positive spin where possible. So DOTD has taken on the challenge of spearheading as we were just talking about the statewide data and modeling program as part of LWI. So you're working with technical experts, federal partners, academic institutions, local stakeholders to create models of Louisiana's watersheds. Can you explain to us what these models entail and what they will enable our state to accomplish in the wake of their creation?
1: Yeah, so I really kind of tell people, and I cannot confirm because we don't know what all is out there, but as far as we have seen, this is one of the most robust, detailed, wide-ranging modeling efforts that has ever happened, be it in the state, national, international. This is going to be the biggest effort to date.
0: It feels pretty big.
1: It is. It's, it's very large. And so we're really going to be providing kind of first-of-its-kind, statewide, calibrated and validated models. Whenever I say calibrated and validated, not only are you running the models and saying this is what it should do, but you're taking historic storm events that have happened and calibrating back to those events so that not only whenever you run a project through it and you see like, you know, this is what it should do, you know that you're not starting at a slightly incorrect place. And so that's been one of the hard things through DOTD statewide flood control that we saw a lot of the time the actual models that we get it's hard for these local municipalities these local jurisdictions to pay an engineer enough to calibrate these models for their projects and so they incur a large cost up front before they can even get funding for a project and so they're having to pay an engineer to go model whether or not this will work they've got to calibrate it so you're looking at tens of thousands of dollars for small Local municipalities that have small tax bases, they oftentimes don't have that cash flow to be able to do that. And so it almost puts them to where those project funding is out of reach because they can't justify the project in the first place.
0: Kind of stalling out before they get started.
1: The application process because you can't show adverse impacts, no adverse impacts. You can't show the benefits. And so that's one of the big things that I think it's going to do is it's going to give everybody that starting point on these models. And then all the engineer has to do is go in and make the tweaks whatever the engineer is hired to show what the project would do. You just make the tweaks to the model of your project. You don't have to build the entire world to model to begin with. Right. And so that's what you're going to be getting is a very just high detailed, calibrated, validated model that can show not only what your current risk is to different events, We're going to be putting in a suite of storms using what we call the annual exceedance probabilities. That is basically you have a 1% chance of this rainfall event happening in any given year. Mm -hmm. And so we have a suite of these from the 1% to the 2%, the 5%, and even some of the bigger storms. That Then you can go in, plug those in, and see what your current risk to those events is. On top of it, you can see what changes could we make to reduce that risk. If you're purchasing a house, we'll have maps that we end up putting out that, um, you know, as each of these models produces its inundation, you'll be able to go in and look at it. Well, what am I really looking at? What happens if a 500-year event happens and I buy this house while you're doing house? Well, you can go into the GIS site, which will be set up go look at the different storms and see where that water surface comes with regards to that house. Wow. So maybe you go, Hey, this thing looks like it's flooding on the 500 year, but the odds of that are low. Um, I've got insurance for it. I'll take that risk. Okay. But it's important for you to understand that risk when you're moving forward. And so that's kind of some of the stuff we're doing. It's a little bit different than the FEMA risk maps. FEMA risk maps are something that's built a little bit differently. And I think at times people can get a false sense of security from the FEMA risk maps as it says that, hey, I'm outside of the the flood zone, so I'm not going to flood. Unfortunately, that is not what the FEMA risk map means at all. Right. But it's kind of, these will kind of give people further information understand, to understand what that means.
0: I like that. I think the interesting part of it is that not only are the models going to be foundational at these higher, like more upper echelon levels, but it will trickle down in essence all the way to these smaller municipalities at the the parish level, the local municipality level, and then even at the individual level that you're going to be developing tools for the everyday citizen to leverage to make more informed decisions about incurring risk.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's a lot of it is it, it gives you information. And one of the things that we say on the models is, no model is going to do everything. Right. You know, I, I can't set up a subsurface drainage network using these models. But what I can do is when I set that up, I know that the area around it, how it will affect it. I will know what water's doing at the boundary of our area. And so that's something that, you know, it's not the primary use of the model, but it is a very valuable tool that comes out of the model.
0: I love it. I love all these peripheral benefits. Killing multiple birds with one stone is never bad. (laughs) So as far as timeline, it was anticipated that all models would be complete by 2023. And here we are. Was this an aggressive timeline? Have you been pleased with the progress? And are you confident that the schedule set forth can be upheld?
1: I think it was a very aggressive timeline, (laughs) but uh, I think that's the nature of it. We need to stay with aggressive timelines. It just kind of forces us to meet goals. And even, you know, if you start with a, you know, what some might call a realistic timeline, well, if stuff starts running off the rails, then you can have a very long timeline. Absolutely. If you start at aggressive and you have a few months of delays, you're still at a pretty reasonable delivery. So right now, I think we're still on pace to meet the end of 2023 deliverables for the models. Now, there there is some additional add-on benefits that will be added after 2023. Okay. By 2023, end of 2023, we will have the calibrated, validated models. Those models will be, they will have included historical events. Those historic rainstorms are what we're using to calibrate the models. Okay. So, once you have that, then you could at least take the projects that you know you have and go in and look at what would have happened if I had this project. Say, we're sitting in the... Uh, close to the Amy River Basin. Okay. So what would happen if we had our project in place for the 2016 flood? And so you will have that. Now, we won't have at that point all of the specific design storms, which are theoretical storms that you put into it. That is whenever somebody says the 100-year rain event. We would call that the 1% annual exceedance probability. We're trying to get away from the 100-year, the 500-year it just kind of gives people a false impression of risk, kind of leads people right into the gambler's fallacy. And we don't want to see that in risk. Right. So I think a big part of it is that we will be giving them the means mm-hmm. to evaluate, yeah, to see what their projects are by the end of this effort, by the end of 2023. Okay. Um, after that, we will have more robust design storms, all those annual exceedance a bit, uh, events, we add some additional consequence modeling to okay. it. So right now, one of the things that's going on, whenever you run consequence modeling right now, basically your model puts out a water surface elevation as a result of the event. Consequence modeling is basically another layer of the modeling programs that takes that water surface elevation and throws it under your known basically built environment. Okay. So the number of the structural inventory is where they have basically each home each structure listed in a watershed so whenever it fills it in it knows the ground floor elevation of that building and it will tell you whether or not that building that specific building is flooding in the event and so that's what basically provides all the data of the consequences of the flooding and so there's an ongoing effort to really build a much more robust structural inventory right now the water institute is working with purdue university on that i mean it's a kind of a nationwide effort to update these structural inventories yeah. we had done some of it in our amy river basin numerical model which we use as a pilot program but that was one of the things that they identified as the biggest need off of that pilot program was that the structural inventory was badly outdated um, okay. this is the national inventory so there's not really a lot that we could do to update that inventory. okay And so that's the effort with Purdue is to update that and then it'll be turned over to our consultants to plug into their consequence modeling. okay so that whenever we get to round three of LWI funding, we will have a very robust set of models with design storms. you could provide probabilistic analysis of different events. So not only are you just running your project and saying, hey, what happens if we build a levy here, and a 100-year storm event happens. Okay, that's great. But what happens if a 500-year event happens or a 50-year event? Because it has some risk associated with each of those events. And so it gives us that ability to kind of approach a more probabilistic approach to risk as we have all those different storm events that we can throw at it.
0: That's really exciting. I like that even, I don't know if it's born of this initiative or if it's a tangential initiative, but... To end up updating a national database or increasing the sense of urgency about updating such a database is, I mean, it's great as being catalytic in that sense as well. And to your point about the aggressive timeline, I will say, and just speaking from, you know, having interviewed our engineer who's coordinating for Region 4, the aggressive timeline has forced us to create efficiencies in our workflows and has forced us to upgrade some of our backend systems and to support the timeline and to, to uphold it. And so I think for all the reasons that you laid out and then the additional benefit that it's an excellent challenge for the people who are executing the work to come up with a creative, efficient, software-driven solutions to keep the timeline, which is is really exciting.
1: Very much so. And that's one of the things that we hope is that in the outcome of this is that we end up with a more robust, more, I guess, more ready engineering community within the state. You know, we do have some national firms working on this, but in every region we have local firms as well. And so that's going to be kind of what keeps these models alive going mm-hmm. into the future is these local firms mm-hmm. that are going to be using it every day. Because the yeah. the $1.2 billion is going to end, yeah. um, but the firms like Fenstermaker will still be here in the state yeah. executing the visions that come out of these models.
0: It's really brilliant, you know, because ha- having the national farms partnering with the local farms and all of the knowledge sharing that's going on. If those national firms at the end of this project, as they kind of fade, I guess, out of the mix, that knowledge has been transferred into the state. So it's a really great, like a collaborative spirit that's going on firm to firm, eliminating a lot of what can sometimes be contingent or competitive energy yeah. and just open doors for just sharing among firms and I really think it's a (laughs) win-win, win-win-win. Well,
1: I think all of our firms are finding out that they are going to struggle to complete these tasks. Mm -hmm. They are not working hand-in-hand.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. So it's forced that collaboration, and I think it's making everybody better. Our firm, I include in that. So there are many components of the watershed monitoring, mapping, and modeling program. You're looking at $145 million in support of this statewide effort, working in partnership with engineering experts to develop, as we discussed, hydrologic and hydraulic models of our state's major watersheds. So you've got the undertaking spread out among seven regions, all requiring extremely close coordination of multiple firms and government entities. So how has it been from a management perspective, managing this extraordinary task?
1: It has been um, overwhelming at (laughs) at times. However, I have a fantastic staff that helps me with it. Two uh, Two project managers and an administrative support specialist that basically keep this program running at its finest 24 hours a day. And that really is what allows me to focus on the bigger picture issues. As we've talked previously, there's multiple state agencies. All of our funding has to be approved through the Office of Community Development, through their action plan with HUD. And so there's a lot of moving pieces that for us to make any change on any of our projects, we have to kind of seek outside approvals and, you know, grease the skids a bit at, at times to keep everything moving forward. And so just the effort that they put into it, the hours that they put into it, just frees me up and allows me to do my job. And I really, I I cannot speak highly enough of my staff and the job that they do in keeping this moving forward. But I think one of the big things that we have is working in consultation with OCP and saying in constant communication on, look, these are the needs. Um, And we knew going in that we were gonna run into some difficulties with this. I mean, we were doing an effort that has never been done before. And on top of it, in the interim, even the software that we're using has received major updates. So then it's like there's certain (laughs) things that the software now does that it didn't do before. Okay. And so it's almost like what, you know, our approved work plan made sets under the last one. But look, this new version of the software can kind of short circuit this and do it better. So we just have to go back, request approvals from them so that we can make those changes. We work with... I know you had spoken with uh, Dr. Maselli, with uh, Tulane. He's part of our TDQ, technical design, quality assurance and quality control team. So whenever we get any deliverables, interim deliverables from our consultants, we send them off to the TDQ for review. And so that's another one that, you know, they're, they're tracking the day to day. And, you know, I tell them, let me know if we see anything that is kind of running off the rails. And you that's where I come of, in to kind of shepherd it back in. It.
0: Yeah. You got lots of checks and balances in there. Mm-hmm. Game. And, uh, it's a sign of a, a good leader from what I understand. So really the shout out their staff and, and acknowledge those contributions.
1: Yeah. Well, I will say no leader is any better than a staff. So.
0: Yes, I agree. So what do you value most? Speaking of the teams that you're leading and executing DOTD's role in the Louisiana Watershed Initiative, what lessons have you learned from a project management standpoint? What takeaways are you going to carry with you? And what advice would you give to anyone who aspires to lead teams of this magnitude?
1: So, the advice I will give is (laughs) patience and respect. And, And that respect is also probably the most important part of it. That with this, You know, we are leading a team of experts. Um, On the modeling side, our teams know better about modeling than I do. And so that's something that we all have to understand is that each of these people has been an expert in the room. You put 12 experts all in the room (laughs) and sometimes disagreements occur.
0: Talk about cooks in the kitchen.
1: Exactly. (laughs) But as long as you're able to kind of maintain that mutual respect, you can disagree, you can have misunderstandings, voices can get raised. As long as you maintain that mutual respect, at the end of the day, you can come to an agreement. And so I think that cooperation has been vital. And I was proud, I don't know, it's probably been a year now, It's the time has been a blur on this effort. But we had one of our, we have monthly uh, statewide modeling consultant coordination calls. And I spoke, I don't remember which one of the consultants, but they said, hey, we have some items that we'd like to put on it. Yeah. Where did it come from? Well, we have our own monthly, biweekly meetings. So all the consultants outside of our management, outside of our direction, took it upon themselves to start having their own coordination meetings. You know, that was something that, in hindsight, it's like, hey, we should have asked them to do that. But we didn't. And the teams took the initiative on their own to coordinate and facilitate that. As you know, the fencer maker is on two other teams. We have kind of the similar, there's primes in one region that are subs in other regions. And so there's a really good, just that cooperation that was built. And some of it was intended, I think, on the side of the teams, but I think a lot of it has just grown organically from need. And so, you know, one of the important things is just stay flexible. You know, what we've decided, what we decided last week, As I mentioned, there's just changes to the software. So it might've been something that I was adamant about. We need to do it this way. When the new software came out, it's like, no, Billy, there's a better way to do it now. And it's so just being open to hear that out and say, hey, what are the pros and cons? And let your experts explain those to you and let you know what you need to do.
0: Yeah, technology can definitely be a roller coaster and can definitely be a wrench in the spoke of a, of a well-designed plan, but I, I think your attitude on it is spot on to have that openness of mind and to allow it to serve the effort versus trying to compete with it because technology is just constantly going to evolve and, yeah. and get better and if we can see it as a partner in making the work product even greater than we imagine, then that's an excellent outcome
1: yeah I, I never imagined the word automation coming up as <laughs> as it has in this effort
0: well, here it comes huh <laughs> yeah there's
1: a lot of a lot of the teams are starting to recognize some different automation that they're able to use that is coming in really handy and it's in a lot of ways it's reducing costs significantly absolutely and and there's something to be said for teams that will reduce their own costs when they're going to get paid either way and so you know that's something else we've been proud about is that our teams are all you know i think they're all working with the interest of the citizens and focus
0: absolutely and with integrity as well correct yeah so talk to me about what it means to you as a citizen of the state of louisiana to be involved in a project of this scale and significance.
1: It is uh, just huge to me. I mean, a a source of great pride, personally and professionally. At the same time, you know, and and I remember when when Raymond and Dax came and presented, they understood. Lafayette flooded in 2016. Baton Rouge flooded. I didn't personally flood, but my childhood house, my parents' house flooded. And I, I spent months getting in there, ripping out sheetrock, ripping out carpets. You know, I I did the hard work of rebuilding my parents' house. And so I understand how vital this is to understand what we're doing. We live in an area where there's, you know, a, a rather complex basin involving four different parishes that each have their own agenda. And so my particular drainage basin has a lot of the kind of pitfalls that we're seeing that we're trying to correct through Watershed Initiative. And so, you know, I see it personally. I see somebody pushing for a project in a parish next door that would adversely impact me. And so, you know, just this effort to not only get a better understanding of proving how that project might affect us, but also just to get everybody in the same room together, I think is vitally important. And just to be able to know that whenever I go home at the end of the day, if it's just moving forward the smallest amount, I can know I'm going to bed that night knowing I did something good for the state. Yeah. No, I didn't just go cash a paycheck. And so that's, you know, one of my favorite things about my job is that I can really go home and feel good about my effort that day. Whether it was a hard day or not, I've moved us towards a better place for the state. And so I just, it's a source, as I mentioned, of just great pride to be involved in it.
0: Sounds really fulfilling for sure. I love that mentality of giving back, not just collecting a paycheck and, You know, being of service and just in any small way, whether it's volunteering or, you know, participating in um, community enhancing initiatives, I find that as well. It's it's really the purest fulfillment in my mind and in, in my life. And so it's good to know that we have state officials who who feel the same way about that. It's really nice. And it it's not always the norm. So, yeah, it's good. It's good to encounter. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> We've arrived at our closing question, one that I ask all of our guests in the spirit of Fueled, our podcast name. So please tell us what fuels you in general, life, work, career, family, what drives you?
1: I think it's just a fight to make the world a better place. Every day, if you can wake up, just eat the slightest of ways. Is it smiling and telling everybody good morning wherever you get into the office? But it's just, you know, having that mutual respect for people and just making sure that you don't create a negative ripple to send out into the world. And so I just, I hope that that's something that my children can see in my behavior. And I hope it's something that, um, a behavior that my children pick up moving forward into their lives. You know, that a lot of the time, it's not, most of the time, it's not something that's hard. You know, if it's just you see somebody and you give them a smile or something like that, you know, just the the small kindnesses and pleasantries that are easily skipped over. uh, I think it's important to kind of keep that that positive light in the world.
0: I love that you want to pass that on. It reminds me of my dad, what he says, number one, above all, he wants his children to care. Yes. And that's kind of what you're.
1: That's exactly it. And like, you know, it's. You know, I, my 13-year-old was in love with, uh, what was the book? It was one of the Dr. Seuss books.
0: The Places You'll Go?
1: The Places You'll Go, but the one with the once Not, the do you know? The Lorax. <laughs> that was kind of, you know, uh, Dr. Seuss pushes a lot of that. Is that it's just like, you know, just stay positive. Push everything forward and, you know, smile. Make sure today is better than yesterday and tomorrow is better to, than today. Mm. And if... No, not everybody feels that way and thinks that way, but if enough of us do, then we'll have a positive impact on the world. I mean, I I don't think any one person is going to change the trajectory of Earth, but, (laughs) you know, enough of us rowing in the same direction can get us there.
0: I think that's a perfect place to stop. And I will thank you again for spending time with us today and for sharing your knowledge, obviously, with everyone who's listening and watching.
1: Thank y'all and thank y'all for watching. (laughs)
0: Great.